reading our sermon text this morning, and it is uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you're using the Bibles provided, it's on page 1015. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even uh, if some do not obey the word, they may be won without the word by conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden, the hidden person of your heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Oh boy, this is the text every pastor loves to teach from. going on here okay take your bibles go to first peter chapter three some of you are like oh what is he gonna say all right i've taught on this similar uh, similar passage before so some of you know exactly where we're going with this but uh it'll be a good time together today Here's a little known fact about Jeremy. Isn't it always pretentious when someone talks to themselves and their own first name? Yeah, but a little known fact about me. Um, for a time, I played the guitar. How many of you knew that? You knew that? Yeah. Let me tell you the story. I should have put I played the guitar, but my grandfather, he played the guitar, and I wanted to learn how to play the guitar, and so I would go over his house and He'd pull out one of his extra guitars and he would, you know, have me hold it and I would, he would teach me some chords. To this day, I know three chords um, and that's it. But then he said, the best way for you to learn is for you to do it. And so he would pick me up, we'd go to the nursing home and I would play the guitar along with him. And so what I did was, is I would sit there and just watch him the entire time. And, like, I would just do whatever he did. And so this. Um, the older ladies loved me, okay? Um, I was a young kid, you know, young teenager who, you know, was there, brought a little bit of energy into the room. But I had really no clue at what I was doing. I can only imagine how bad this sounded, okay? So my grandfather and his buddies, they were there, and so they would bring me in there. It must have been, there was like three guys in their 70s, and then, you know, then there's me sitting there playing along or whatever, just trying to figure things out. And so he would move a finger, and I would try to move something that just resembled it a little bit. And then I'm like, how is he strumming this? And so I was trying to strum it. So this went on for a summer or so, and it was a gloriously confusing time for me, you know? I had no clue at all what I was doing. But it was kind of fun, but at the same time, I just didn't know what I was doing. It was a kind of a fake it till you make it situation. You know what I mean? Now, why do I tell you that? Maybe, so it needs to say, I can't play the guitar. But the, why did I say, why did I start with that story? 
Because I think sometimes we feel that way about life. It's kind of like we really don't know really what we're doing, or we, we kind of have ideas, and we're, we're trying to look to someone, and we're trying to figure this thing out. And this is really the whole purpose of the book. Now, so let, me just, let me just remind you, let me just back up before we talk about this specific text here. Let me just remind you a little, a little bit of what Peter's doing here. He's helping us know how to live righteously in a fallen world amidst persecution while looking to Jesus as an example. Yeah, there probably should be a comma in there somewhere. I don't know where, but it's supposed to be there someplace. But you get the point. Peter is helping us know how to live righteously in a fallen world that are, where these people that he's writing to, they're going through persecution while looking to Jesus as the example. Last week, uh, Wayne, when he was teaching from the text previous to this, he uh, had this t- the, the, the part about where Jesus, looking at that Jesus is our example, how that he, that we might follow in his steps, verse 21 of chapter two. So this is what Peter's doing here. He's saying, it's confusing how to know how to live in this world. It's confusing what's going on. It, there's, there's a lot of complexities here. I'm giving you some advice, what Peter's saying. I'm giving you some advice. I'm telling you how you can live in this fallen world, even while you're going through difficult circumstances and even persecution for the faith. So he's informing a Christian's relationship of how they should interact with a non-Christian world. Now, the text that was read is going to be our main source for the sermon here. The governing text, though, that this flows out of is back in chapter 2. So I need to read that, okay? Verse 11 of chapter 2. So if you're there, look at that. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, this is the controlling text of what is going to follow here. So what he's doing then after he writes that is then he gives examples of how to live that out. So he says be subject, and this is the text of last week that Wayne covered for us, was be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, verse 13. Then in verse 18, he talks about the relationships of servants in this world of how they respond. He gives Jesus as example. Then in our text today, he says likewise. That's the first word of chapter three, likewise. So you know he's just continuing on saying, here's another category of people who should look to Jesus for their example of how to live righteously in this sin-cursed world while they're going through persecution here, as I just said. And this flows from verse 11, 12. So we just need to lay that out there so you kind of see the argument because that's going to govern what he's trying to communicate in this. So we can say it this way. And we said this a couple weeks ago. Coming to Jesus is a lifelong commitment with life-altering ramifications. We said that a couple weeks ago. Today's text includes marriage, okay? Coming to Jesus is a lifelong commitment with life-altering ramifications, including marriage. So we're going to break this down into two points this morning, uh, a word to the wives and a word to the husbands. Let me pause and ask God's blessing, and then we will we'll continue on. Father... We set the table, we set the stage, we're ready to, to dive into this text a little bit more, but we want to pause now because this is your word. This isn't my word, this isn't the church's word, this is your word. And so we want your spirit to guide us, 
Please guide me as I teach. Guide those who listen. Give discernment to both. And above all, would you be glorified and would you be honored? I pray that we wouldn't be distracted. I pray that we'd be able to set everything else aside and be able to, to, to learn of you and learn from your word. And may it be helpful to us as we, as we study this. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. First of all, a word to the wives, a word to the wives. So what does he say about wives here? How are they supposed to live in this culture here that it's a sin-cursed culture, that they're, that they're sojourners and exiles? How does he say, what does he say to do? He says, be submissive to your husbands. And so I know some of you right now, it's like there's, there's something about you know that it's in the Bible, but it's just, it just kind of... And I get it because there's so much that has been, that's been negative about this and has been abused in so many ways. I thought Wayne did a, a good job last week. Uh, he was, uh, I was home with a, with a child not feeling well. Um, I didn't have the responsibilities I normally did. It made more sense for me to stay home. And my wife had some teaching responsibilities with the ladies' class. And so I stayed home last week. And it was a, it was a surreal experience in some ways. But I thought Wayne did a great job. Now we should pray for Wayne because now he's homesick. So. Uh, we'll, we'll pray for him, and hopefully he's watching, and uh, we're grateful for his ministry and praying for him. But last week when he talked about this idea of submission in reference to the idea of verses 13 and 18 of chapter 2, he said, remember that submission is not something demanded. It's not blind loyalty. It's not unthinking obedience. And it's not doing with a hard heart. And that's what he communicated as, as what submission was not. And so and it's, in order to understand what something is, sometimes it's helpful to start with what it's not. And so when we talk about this idea of submission, I thought it was helpful that he said it's not unthinking obedience. It's not just something that's demanded or blind loyalty. We're not asking what Peter is saying here. He's not saying, wives, be doormats. Just do whatever the husband say. That's not what he's communicating here. But it is a communication that is strong. So I guess here's, there's, there's a couple of dangers here. One, we could fall into the trap of making this say more than what Peter wanted it to say. But then we could also fall into the trap of making it say less than what Peter wants it to say. So we're going to try to thread the needle and we're going to teach exactly what he's saying here. A wife's submission is for, to God first, and then it's also limited to her husband. So we talked about that when, when um, I've been teaching on this before. So I'm going to remember that I said that this is not a command to all women to be submitted to all men indiscriminately. This is a wife submitting to her husband. And the whole point of this is his roles. It's roles and responsibility. It, it, it's not about worth. It's not about inferiority. But it is about saying, okay, we need someone to lead, and I'm going to give the relation or give the responsibility of leadership to the husband and wives. You need to follow that leadership. That's what he's saying here. Okay? And it really is a picture of Christ's submission to the church. I mean, and I remember talking about this several years ago, and someone wrote me and said, man, this was helpful to me because I, I've, I've never really understood it in this way before. Of, but, you know, this is because some people say, well, immediately here, once you say wives submit to your husbands, you are saying as much as you can claim you're not, you're saying that wives are inferior to the husbands. And I would say, no, it's possible because Christ submitted to the Father. And Christ is not inferior at all to the Father. 
And so this is a way where as we all have opportunities to express our relationship with God, we have an opportunity to, to picture what Christ has done, and God has actually given marriage as the picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, and so we all have different roles to fill with that, but he says, with wives, he says, that's, that's a picture of what Christ has done in his, his submission to the Father, and it's a beautiful picture of that. It's not in terms of inferiority, in terms of lack of worth, or in terms of that uh, uh, the the, the wife is less knowledgeable or unwise. It's a matter of giving a God-appointed role. That's what he's talking about here. And so the parameters, as we said before, is to God. In Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is writing on the subject, um, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so he's saying that it really should come out of a submission to the Lord, to God first and foremost. Now, you have to look at this. Some people may look at this and say, man, I mean, this is like so chauvinistic. There are so many, there are six verses uh, given, talking about wives here and only one to husbands here. I mean, this is, this is a patriarchal, you, know, you hear all the terms thrown around today, toxic masculinity and all this stuff, which are, are extraordinarily unhelpful. What this is talking about, though, is that he's actually being extraordinarily countercultural by even addressing the wives. And by, by, by treating them as equals in this. Uh, you know, there's a Greek philosopher of the first century, Plutarch, and this is what he said. He said this, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husbands worship, and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. This is the Greco-Roman philosophy. This is a first century philosopher who would have been, uh, uh, during this time of writing, this was the culture of the day. So it was expected that when a woman would marry, she would just you know, get rid of any type of religion that she had, and she would just follow the gods and follow the religion of her husband. And so, in fact, and she wasn't supposed to even have her own social circle. His friends were to be her friends. His circle was to be her circle. And so her identity was to be wrapped up in her husband. This is what the social, the, the, the cultural context was. So for Peter to say, say, be submissive to your husbands so that even if some do not obey, they may be one without a word to, by the conduct of their wives. He is saying there, wives, you follow Christ. You follow God first and foremost. He's telling them, you don't abandon the God. If you're a believer and your husband's not, if that's the situation, he's telling them, you go against the culture and you don't follow your husband's gods. You continue to follow Yahweh. You continue to follow the true God. And so it really is countercultural what he's, what he's doing here. And he says that the parameters of this, he says, you know, the, before you submit to anyone else, you're submitting to God and, 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 and to him first and foremost. And then even in those relationships, you submit to your husbands, but not to men in general. But he, why does he say this? What's the purpose of this? Again, the purpose of this is we go back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The whole point of this is he's telling them as sojourners and exiles. He says, abstain from those passions which war against your soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good works and glorify your God in a day of visitation. So we have that controlling verse. Then we also have this other part of verse one 
Where it says, so that even if they don't obey your word, they meet one without a word by the conduct of their wives. What is he saying here? Peter is saying, he's teaching, don't you see? He's saying that there's an apologetic or a defense or an evangelistic reason for this. If you contrast Paul's writings on this in Ephesians chapter 5, you contrast that with here in 1 Peter chapter 3, you'll see that the, the, it's the same advice or the same commands, let's make it what it is, the same commands that are given, but for two different purposes. Paul, he's rooting his arguments in, 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 in Ephesians chapter 5 in a theological argument. But here, Peter's saying, no, 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 this is, this is apologetic. This is evangelistic. This is why you do this. He says, we need to live in this culture as sojourners and exiles. So what he's saying, he's saying, you don't get your marching orders. You don't get your worldview. You don't get your, the way you see everything in the way you want to uh, conform your life to. You don't get that from the outside world. You're a stranger in exile. And how that's expressed is even in marriage. He says, don't go after this. So Plutarch here, this Greek philosopher here, Peter would have serious issues with this. Absolute serious issues with this because it's not prioritizing God first. So the first thing he tells women here is, he says, the wives here, he says, be submissive to your own husbands so that there's an evangelistic component to this. Now, this is not guaranteeing that the husband is going to be saved. And by, by the way, this is not saying that there was even tons of, of unbelieving husbands and believing wives because he just says, even if there, so it's like, if, if this is the case, even in those situations, still do this. Because this is pleasing to God. This is how you fulfill the role. Uh, again, we can say, well, how does that work out, practically speaking? And, and, there's, and we're going to get, when we talk to the men in verse 7 here, some limitations on this. But I'll just go back to what I said before. This means that, that God has asked men to lead in the relationship. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. Um, and, and, um, and it is a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to submit to leadership sometimes. But God has, he, this is what this whole point is. It was difficult for servants here. It was difficult for all of us to be submissive in verse 13 here. But again, he gives the example of Christ. So let Christ's example. So wives, if, if there's a wife here that is, is struggling with this in some ways, and I'm going to give some, some things that you might be thinking here in a few minutes here, but if you're struggling with this in some ways, let me just encourage you to look to the example of Christ. You have a unique way. You have a unique opportunity to express to express um, uh, what Christ did and to picture that. And there's a beautiful apologetic evangelistic component to it, okay? We're going to get into some of the limitations of that here in a minute. But let me go on to the second thing that he talks about here. I don't know if you notice in the text here, but he says in verse 2, or verse 3, excuse me, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting of clothing here. What is he talking about here? He's saying pursue true beauty here is really what he's saying here. Pursue true beauty. And then the first point he makes here is that true beauty is not external here. It's just not external here. But, you know, this brings up some interpretive challenges here when you look at this and say, okay, what is he, what is he prohibiting here? What exactly is he prohibiting here? So look on the room, does any women have any braids in their hair? 
All right, all right. Women, you have a gold ring on. Okay, is this what we're talking about here? Is this a command? Okay, you, you can't braid your hair and you can't wear a gold ring. No, that's not true. You say, how do you know that? Because if we're going to take that little hermeneutic, we've got to apply it to all of it. And it says, or the putting on of clothes. And we want everyone wearing clothes here, okay? So we know that that's not what he's saying here. So the question is, well, what is he saying then? So if he's not saying that, what is he saying here? And what he's talking about here is I believe, because this is also, we find the same um, terminology that's in First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 2, when uh, Paul talks about women and their conduct in the church, and he talks about this braiding of hair and pearls and, and gold and things like that. That's what he, he puts this on. What is he referring to here? During this time, so starting from about 97 B.C. to about, you know, 100, a little after 180, uh, historians have, have really recovered, and there's a lot of first century or, or primary source work that's done this. Bruce Winter wrote a really good book on this called uh, Roman Wives and Roman Widows. And um, there's, there's evidence here of what was known as the new Roman woman at this time. Um, it was a change uh, starting on what women were allowed to do, okay, and, and property to own and stuff that was more so than what was in previous generations. In fact, we see uh, legislation from Augustus, from Caesar, Caesar Augustus from 17 B.C. So we're talking just, you know, a couple of decades before the birth of Christ where he puts out legislation that's trying to curb some of this, okay, that was coming up of this women finding greater wealth and they're becoming independent. And so what they would do is to express this, they would dress in opulent ways and put their hairstyles in these huge ways. And, and, and you say, well, how do we know this? Well, how do we know this is because we have statues and we have coins from that era. And they would often, Caesars and stuff, they would often... Um, put their wives' images in these statues or on these coins or, or made statues of it. And those would be the, the women that, that people would, of society would want to emulate. So it, it's kind of like there would be billboards today, okay? And so, you know, people see movie stars and people see the trends and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden you start seeing, you know, an actress or an actor or, or you, know, a, you know, a celebrity of some sort wearing certain clothing and pretty much you kind of see, you know, what's going on. This is what's happening. Nothing's new under the sun. And so this was happening where... There's these women with greater wealth. They were expressing that. More sexual freedom. They were flaunting that. And, and also you have to understand that much more in our culture than we experience today, in this culture, uh, how you dressed was a very, very bold statement about what you were trying to communicate. You were trying to communicate either society, uh, societal status or uh, even um, some sexual freedom and stuff. We have elements of that in our culture where you could see some of the things. You say, okay, that's what's being communicated here, but not to the degree that it was in the Roman culture. So during this time, historians talk about this Roman woman coming up and they were expressing themselves with this huge elaborate hairstyles, lots of gold, lots of, of opulency, things like this. And government in general was not happy with this change. Um, and that's where I talked about Augustus trying to curb some of this um, because uh, this change in culture, because it was messing up the fabric of society here. And so what Peter basically is saying here is he's saying, don't let the culture determine what is beautiful. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, don't let society dictate in your mind what is true beauty, okay? 
So this is not a prohibition against, you know, being in style, okay? I, I know when, when you see me, you think, man, there's a, there's a stylist dude. I get it. I get it, okay? All right? <laughs> All right? If you know me, you know that's a joke. But the point is, is that um, it's nothing wrong to be in style. No one's saying that you, you, have to, you have to wear clothes that are out of style or anything. That, that's not what I'm saying. But don't lean on that as your identity. Don't lean on that as what is truly beautiful. He says, you need to pursue what is true beauty, not what culture says is beauty. And then he goes on and tells us what that is. But let your adorning be the hidden heart, verse 4, of the heart with the imperishable beauty. So true beauty is imperishable. And what is it? The, ge- the gentle and quiet spirit. Now, again, okay, what does this mean? I can never speak my mind? No, that's not what it means. But it means not to look down on your husband or resist the leadership if he's exercising within the boundaries set forth in Scripture. It means that, uh, uh, that you're a, a wife that is easy to lead. You're going to get in a minute where I'm going to tell husbands, you need to be the type of leader that is easy to follow. Wives, you need to be the type of wife that is uh, easy to lead. This is what Peter's trying to get at here because we can't list, miss the forest for the trees here. Back in verse 11 of 12 of chapter 2 is how we're to act in this world and how we're to have this evangelistic and even apologetic uh, expression through our lifestyles. What are we communicating? If we're, are, we, are we communicating that Christ is our only hope in life and death, as we just sang a minute ago, if, our, if we're communicating that our value is based on what we wear, or our value is determined by our occupation, or our value is determined by how much money we have in the bank account? You see, that's the apologetic, the evangelistic uh, component here, is that if our hope is something else, then the hope is not Christ in life and death. Peter's pushing us back to that. He's pushing us to say, and even in your marriage, I'm going to use the example of marriage, he says, make sure that you're communicating that Christ is your hope. Because that goes back to the end of chapter 2. This is true beauty here. So what he does then is he gives an example of that. He says, um, uh, this is how, verse 5, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. All right, here's a pro tip, husbands. Please don't go home and say, okay, the Bible says Sarah called Abraham Lord. Guess what? I shall now be known as Lord. <laughs> All right. Had a different con- you know, connotation than today, right? Um, I think, you know, as I look around the room, and I know most of you, I can only imagine how your wives would respond to that. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that what he, the, the illustration here is he's saying, I'm just showing you Sarah. I'm showing how these holy women, they were submitted to their husbands. Now think about this in Sarah. I mean, there was, there was times where Abraham had to follow God and he was doing things and it was confusing. And it was, it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But yet he was following God and she supported him in it. And that, that's, that's what he's getting at here. He's just following her husband as he followed God encouraging her husband as he followed God here. Um, and so he, 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 uh, he, he, he gives Sarah as the example here. But look how what he says here. As her children, you as her children, so descendants of her, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening here. What is he saying? He's saying that don't grow weary in doing good. Living out a submitted life is, is hard. 
On one level, and, and Paul makes this very clear in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, that we are all called to submission. We see this also in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. All of us are being submitted. So all of us have an element of submission in our lives. It's not just women to men in the, the, the relationship of marriage. But the point is, is that that gets difficult at times. All of us experience that. But he's saying, don't grow weary in doing good, like Paul says elsewhere. He says, do good. Keep doing this. And he says, don't live in fear. So this is a good takeaway. Wives, as you're called to follow your husbands, it can be scary. I know some of your husbands. It can be scary. (laughs) Okay? All right? But don't live in fear. Because ultimately, even if he makes the mistakes, he's going to be held accountable for those things. You are secure, okay? Don't live in fear. And let me just say, as someone who is wound up and so tight with fear all the time, and second-guessing everything, what about this, what about this, everything, it actually makes it hard to lead in those situations. Um, I, I read the story, in, in this is in uh, Tim and Kathy uh, Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is a really good book on marriage, by the way. Uh, if you're looking for a book on marriage to read, I would recommend it. Um, Kathy tells a story of when they were getting ready to move to New York, or they were considering moving to New York to start Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Um, it was very unknown. It was, uh, it was kind of a, uh, an opportunity to go to New York City and, 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 and start this church. They, he was a professor uh, uh, at a seminary at the time, kind of had a stable job. They had three young kids, I think three, uh, three young boys at the time. Everything was pretty stable. And then the, the, the move, if they went to New York, they'd have to move into New York, and housing is very difficult there, different there than it would be in, in where they were living in Pennsylvania. I believe it was Pennsylvania. And so the point is, is that they had to live in this tiny little house, and the neighborhood wasn't this safe, and it was very uncertain about the, the, the pay and all this stuff and everything. And so Kathy writes in the book that she could tell that Tim wanted to do this, but Tim could tell that she had a lot of reservations. And so they would talk back and forth. Should we do this? Should we do this? Should we do this? Should we do this? Some of you can, you can identify with this. <laughs> you know, you've had to process a difficult decision and how many conversations you've had to have, uh, you know, trying to come up with a decision. Tim and Kathy apparently were having these conversations. And finally, Tim said to her, um, well, if you don't want to do it, we're not going to do it. And you know what Kathy responded? Don't you dare put this on me, buddy. That's advocating. If you feel God is calling us there to do this, then you lead us there and you let me and God figure out how I'm going to follow. But you don't dump this on me. So they go to New York. And, you know, a great ministry happened and everything. It's just she talks about this, and I think it was just so instructive in so many ways. Is number one, she recognized the fear of the situation. It's uncomfortable. And husbands, we need to be conscious of that. We're going to get into this about living our wives according to knowledge. That when we're making decisions, that it's fearful at times for our wives. We need to be conscious of that. doesn't mean that we don't do it necessarily. Maybe it does. But it just means that we've got to be conscious of that. But wives, don't let fear stop your husband from following God. And there's a lot of gray area in this. There's a lot of nuance in this. And there's a lot of, uh, I know right now, well, what if, Jeremy, what about this? What about, I get all that. I get all that. And we can have personal conversations about that. I'm speaking generalities. I get that, okay? But here's what the text says, is that 
This is how lies are to follow. Is they're to follow in a loving way, not fearing because they're trusting God. Because the submission isn't primary. Their hope isn't in their husband. It's in God. And that's how that she can have this. And look at the response of this. Look at the approval here. The approval is not, she's not to seek the approval of her husband in this. In the end of verse 4, it says, which this imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is precious. So the approval you get is not your husband's, although, I mean, you should. But the point is, is that the ultimate approval that you're going to get in this is God's. And so it's a beautiful thing here. It's complicated. It's complex. It can be difficult. It can be nuanced. But it's also very plain of what he's trying to say here. He's saying, as sojourners and exiles, this is how we express this, wives. Example of true beauty. All right. Before I move on to the word of the husbands, maybe some of you are thinking, maybe some wives here are thinking, okay, other women may be wired this way. I'm not. I'm just not wired this way. Let me just remind you that commands are given for what feels unnatural and what is difficult. Okay? I get it. But God still, just because you feel like you're not wired this way doesn't mean that it's not what we're called to do if you're a wife here. What if my husband is not a good leader? He's just not a good leader. I'm a better leader than he is. And that could be very true. Okay? I go back to verse 23. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to talking about Jesus, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And so he says, my trust isn't the one who's going to judge justly in this. And so if your husband is not a good leader, and there's limits to this, okay, because obviously if he's trying to lead you to do something that's immoral or wrong, then obviously this is not what we're talking about here. You have no obligation to follow that. But if it's a perfectly moral thing or he's trying to follow God and it... It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. You can talk about it and things, and please do share your mind. But the point is, is that at the end, you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly, and that's Jesus. And if he makes a bad decision, that's on him. And look, and I've had this conversation before. We've had these decisions, and, you know, we're trying to make a decision together, and she's just like, in a loving, gracious way, she's a wonderful wife. I couldn't ask for a better wife. And she would say, well, I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> you know, you have to make this decision. And I'll support you, whatever you do. But I'm glad I don't have to make this decision. And we, she helps make the decision. We talk things through. But at the end, she's like, "You're the one that's going to stand before Jesus on this, not me." I appreciate that, and I fear that at the same time. And trust yourself to one who judges justly. Okay, what if my husband's abusive? Peter's teaching here does not sanction abuse, okay? I just need to say that. And I, I, it would be naive to think that uh, that could never happen in our church. If there's any abuse going on, then you need to get help. And this passage should never be weaponized for abuse against the spouse, okay? Um, that is just not acceptable. That's not what this is teaching, okay? So if you have questions about what is abuse and what's not abuse and everything... I would love to talk to you. My wife would talk to you or something. We would be happy to have those conversations with you. But I just need to publicly state this is not sanctioning abuse. 
You say, okay, well, I'm not married here. How is this applicable? Well, if you hope to be married one day, begin to foster biblical countercultural view of marriage, okay? Think about what type of wife you would hope to be. If you're not planning on marrying in the future, then you understand this is a high calling for women and it's a difficult calling for your sisters. Pray earnestly for your sisters who are married in this church, okay? Those are ways that you can apply this. So that's a word to the wives. Now, we're going to spend more time on the wives because, because there's more verses here, but that doesn't mean that, this is, uh, that the husbands are less significant. So let's talk about a, a word to the husbands here. What does he say here? So likewise, okay, he's now he's introducing a new category here um, of people. But based upon what he said, all the similar theological underpinnings of this are going to carry into this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What is he saying here? He's saying basically, honor your wife. That's what he's saying. Honor your wives, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so your prayers are not hindered. Okay, he says, you gotta, you men have to be, while your wife is called to submit to your leadership, you are called to honor her. And how do you do that? By living with her in an understanding way. Now, there's a couple of things about how we can interpret that. We have to make a decision on that, and I think both are fine. We can interpret that to say that in an understanding way, that refers to an understanding of what God expects of them, or does that mean it's an understanding way of talking about um, understanding your wife? Okay, both are uh, legitimate ways to interpret this, the, the, the text there. I think that both are carried through it. I don't think one is at the exclusion of the other, but given the context of it and talking, I think he's talking about living your wives according to how you know your wife. You know your wife. Get to know her. Know what, 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 what helps her. Knows what, know what doesn't help her. Live with her in a way that is showing honor to her. And so the question is, do you know your wives, husbands? I mean, do you know what she appreciates? Do you know what ticks her off? You're like, oh, I know that one. Okay, <laughs> I know that one. All right, okay. Well, 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 well don't, don't tease her too much about it. And you're like, oh, okay, that's rich coming from you. You're always talking about how old your wife is. All right, but the point is we kind of have this thing, and I've always told her if, if, if you don't like the joke anymore, I'm going to stop doing it. Okay, right, okay. okay. She's saying yes. Um, and I will, you know, because it's, it's a fun joke to have, but only if it's fun, right? So you have to do it in an understanding way. You have to live with your wife according to knowledge. So do you know your wife? Do you know what encourages her? Do you know what's helpful to her? And this is, I tell you, I preach sermons I need to hear. And so as I'm thinking this, I'm like, okay, I need to dial this up. I need to do a better job here at this. I think we all do, husbands. Do you seek her input? Do you dismiss her thoughts? Now, again, we have to honor a wife. Now, again, as always, there's two ditches to avoid here, man. Okay, husbands. The first ditch is that we can dishonor our wives by being domineering, okay? By, I don't care what you think. Um, I, you know, I'm the leader of this house. So we can dishonor our wives by being too domineering, and that's demeaning to her, and it's selfish. But the other ditch is that we can dishonor our wives by not leading at all. And I think we're probably more in that category in society. I'll just do what you want to do. And putting all the responsibility on the wife. That's not honoring her. That's, not her. that's, that's asking her to fulfill a position or role that, that God hasn't asked her to do. And you're just taking your responsibility and throwing it on her. Don't do that. 
lead in a way that she can follow in an honoring way. And so, you know, not leading at all is advocating and selfish. So don't domineer. Don't be dominating. Don't be, you know, so controlling and, and, and just being heavy-handed and dismissive. And if you wonder if you are, maybe you should have a conversation with your wife. Say, how is my leadership? Have you ever had that conversation with your wife? How do you think I'm leading on a scale of one to 10 here? Where am I at on leading us as a family? And you, I'm giving you permission to be completely honest. And, I, you know, I'm not going to get angry. I just, I just need to know. Do you have those conversations? Have you ever done that and said, am I leading well? Or what areas would you like me to be a better leader in? Those would be really helpful conversations. But the point is you have to be a leader. And you can't, so you can't be too dominating, but then on the other hand, you can't just give it up and just like, well, I don't know, whatever you want to do. I don't know, whatever you want to do. That's not honoring your wife. So he, he talks about in this text here of, of why we should do this as husbands. First of all, here's the reasons, because she's a weaker vessel. Now, again, a lot of ink has been spilt on this. Uh, there was a time where the most common understanding of this was actually, and it wasn't worded this way, was that uh, women were inferior to men. Um, and that's not what he's saying here. Um, I think the easiest understanding of this, and what most current scholarship would agree with, is that he's talking about the, just the fact that men are naturally stronger than women. Okay? Physically, typically, men are stronger than women, okay? That's just how it goes. Um, now, why would he bring that into this? Because it'd be easy for men, and it's easy for men to use the physical strength or the presence to dishonor their wife. You say, don't do that. You honor her. She's a weaker vessel, but she's a vessel. Did you see that? She's someone who God wants to use for his kingdom purposes. She's someone who has gifts and abilities unique to her that God has a plan for. And so you honor her in that. And knowing that she's weaker, you don't take advantage of your physical strength. You don't dominate her. You honor her. And then he says, because it says, um, since they are heirs with you of grace... Again, we have to stop and understand how countercultural this was for Peter to write this. To say that a woman had the same standing in God's economy as a man would have been very countercultural at this time. And yet that's what he's saying here. And so it goes back to the, under, the, the main point here is we never look to culture to determine what we're going to view about marriage or what we're, we're going to view about sexuality or what we're going to view about how we are to live in our relationships. We never look to culture for that. We always look to God for that. And so he says, they're, they're joint heirs of grace with you. You honor her for that. You don't demean her. You don't shut her up. You don't, you don't ignore her. You don't, you don't you know, dishonor her in any way because she is someone who God is gracious towards and God loves just like he loves you. She has a different role, yes. She submits to your leadership, yes. But you honor her. The husband's. We have to honor our wives here. And again, you say, well, what does that mean? What does that look like in a day-to-day thing? We can talk about some of those nuances here, but you know, for purpose sake of this sermon, we're just speaking in a broad generalization. Then 
if Peter's been pretty strong at this point, and I think you kind of get the point here. Husband, you've got to lead in a, in, in a way that is honoring to your wife and not dishonoring her. But he doesn't stop there. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He says, God values your loving, honoring leadership over your wife so much that it will disrupt your prayer life. It will disrupt your communication with God if you do not lead well in an honoring way. That, my friend, is a sobering truth. So some of you husbands, you may be thinking, well, man, God isn't answering my prayers. Maybe you should check to see. I'm not saying it's definitely this, but it would be part of the rubric I'd run through. Am I honoring my wife? It's very clear in Scripture that God, he views us so strongly that we lead biblically in an honoring way that he says it's going to interrupt our relationship. Notice that there's nothing like this mentioned for the wives. So wives, you may not like the submissive thing, but at least you're not told that your prayers are going to be hindered. You see, the point is, is that both of us, men, husbands, women, wives, we have clear instruction from Scripture that we cannot allow culture to dictate. Because listen, you read this in today's culture right now in Madison and Dane County, it's a little weird. People are saying, what in the world are you doing here? But we don't take our marching orders from them. We take our marching orders from the Scriptures. We do it in a loving, gracious way. So, husbands, you say, well, what? Okay, you talk about... Living, you know, living with and leading your wife according to knowledge of her. Here's my question. What if she's impossible to figure out? Commands are given for what feels unnatural and for things that are difficult to accomplish, <laughs> okay? You know, we laugh because it's like, yeah, I mean, there's this, this standard joke of like, you know, men trying to figure out women, right? And, and husbands trying to figure out wives, all joking aside, this is why it's commanded. Because it is hard. And that's not a slam on women or a slam on men. It's just saying that when we have this, it's difficult because we have two sinners. I always tell people this when I do premarital counseling. I say, listen, here's what, what you're embarking upon. You're embarking upon God taking you, a glorious sinner, and him or her, another glorious sinner, and he's going to say, I'm going to make one flesh. If that's not a recipe for disaster, I don't know what is, okay? So there's going to be some difficulties there, but that's where the gospel gets seen in the picture. It's just a beautiful picture here. It's difficult. So, yes, it is hard to figure out. Our wives are hard to figure out sometimes, but I think they say the same about you. Commands are given for what feels unnatural and for things that are difficult to accomplish. Here's the other question. Well, what if she just won't submit? Well, here's the thing. You're never told to demand it. I would encourage you to talk about it. I would encourage you to uh, have a conversation, but we're never told, husbands, to go to our wives and say, you submit to me. That's not what it's Submission comes out of her submission to God first and foremost. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly, and I would just tell her, continue to love her and be the husband who is easy to follow. So I said this as I started. Oh, I got behind in my slide, sorry. Um, Coming to Jesus is a lifelong commitment 
with life-altering ramifications, including marriage. So this is what he's talking about, living in a culture, that we're living counterculturally. And what does marriage look like? We have the opportunity to celebrate the table at the end of every sermon, and it's very good to, 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 to take personal things from the sermon and apply it to what we're doing at the table here. So wise, let me just encourage you, be reminded when you come to the table here, that this is a symbol of Christ's submission to the Father. You say, man, I am, it's so difficult for me to think about submitting to my husband. Just when you take the bread and we take the juice here, and it's a reminder of Jesus' death, which came out of submission to the Father, you say, okay, Jesus did this, and he's calling me to do this. I can do this too, through the power of Christ. Husbands, be reminded of that Christ embraced his leadership role and how much it cost his own personal comfort, but yet he embraced his role in following uh, uh, the Father and then leading us to glory, leading many sons to glory. Now, maybe there's those of you here who are not a wife or a husband, just be reminded that following Jesus is a lifelong commitment with life-altering ramifications for even you in your singleness and and maybe for teenagers, maybe for students, wherever you're at in life, following Jesus is a lifelong commitment with life-altering ramifications. Jesus he reminds us of this at the table is saying, I have not come just to give you advice on how to live your life. I have come to show you exactly how to live, even if it's countercultural. 